0: Do any of these sound familiar? It's my right to do what I want. Sound familiar? Why make a fuss about sex? Why does it matter who I sleep with? Sound familiar? Eat, drink and be merry. You only live once, so eat, drink and be merry and modify your body if that's the sort of thing you like. Now where do these thoughts come from? Well, they're very common in our society. We've all heard that sort of thing in our society, but they were also how the Christians in Corinth were thinking. And they're all things that are corrected in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. So let's turn there again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. For those who don't know, we're in a series going through 1 Corinthians, and this is where we've got to. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. What, what is God doing in these verses? Well, there was a specific issue in Corinth. The Christians were visiting prostitutes. And not for evangelistic reasons. Unbelievable. The Christians were going to prostitutes. And so this is addressed in these verses with a very specific answer. Verse 18, it's very straightforward, flee from sexual immorality. But that very specific answer is built on gospel principles. And so this issue, they're visiting the prostitutes, becomes an opportunity to hit some bigger issues. Bigger principles like, what's a Christian attitude to our body? What's a Christian attitude to our areas of freedom in life? And so this issue that's come up in Corinth, the Christians are visiting prostitutes, and, and Paul's insistent he's got to stop this happening becomes an opportunity for something bigger and more positive. You get right at the end of the chapter. Here's the goal of it all, verse twenty therefore honour God with your body. I want us to go through those principles for these practical reasons that we've just heard. And do it this way. If you've got a Bible like mine, it splits these verses into two paragraphs. Verses 12 to 17 is paragraph 1, getting our understanding right. And by the way, it splits into three stages of getting our understanding right. And then verses 18 to 20 is paragraph 2, getting our actions right. So that's where we're going this evening. We've got to get our understanding right and then get our actions right. So let's begin with paragraph 1, verses 12 to 17, getting our understanding right. You see, Christian living is not just do this and don't do that. Yes, Christian living is practical action with very definite do's and don'ts. I'm not going to claim it's all grey and, you know, wishy-washy. There are very definite do's and don'ts. But they're on the basis of who God is, who we are, and what Jesus has done. And so before the do's and don'ts, which are very definite of verse 18 to 20, we get our understanding put right in verses 12 to 18. Three ways. Here's the first way. Have a wiser view of Christian freedom. This is verse 12. Verse 12. Now, what's going on here? Sometimes in in 1 Corinthians, we have to do some detective work because sometimes it's, it's not clear... Is Paul quoting them or what quite is going on? You see, Paul knew the church in Corinth well. He'd spent time there. They had written to him and he'd written to them. I know in our Bibles it's called 1 Corinthians, but it wasn't the first letter to Corinth or from Corinth. There had been letters in the background behind this. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul sometimes quotes them. He quotes them back to themselves. And we get that in verse 12. The Corinthians were saying, everything is permissible for me. Which sounds bizarre, but it's probably this. Paul had come and emphasised how a lot of the laws in the Old Testament, particularly about what you could and couldn't eat, have gone. And you've got Christian freedom. And they've taken that and they've pushed it to everything is permissible for me. It's an interesting phrase, as is usual with the NIV, which is what I'm using. It's got the meaning right, but you miss some of the words in it. It's it's loosely like this. I have the right to do whatever I want. Does that sound familiar? Ah, That surely is our society. There's the word here, power or authority or right. Now, it's not true. God's law still forbids some things. Including sexual immorality. But Paul's going to, Paul's going to attack it from a different angle to start with. So the first half of verse 12 goes a bit like this. Even if everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. He's not going to say it's all permissible, but let's, let's start on their basis. Even if it is all permissible, it's not all beneficial. The second half of verse 12 goes a bit like this. You can have a look at it and then uh, while you're looking at it, listen to my alternative translation. You say, I've got power to do all things. But I say, I won't be brought under the power of anything. There's the word power in there hidden behind our English translations. Did you see that? You say, I've got power to do all things. I say, I won't be brought under the power of anything. In other words, Paul's saying, look, your idea of freedom is self-deceiving because you are getting enslaved. You are letting something become unlawful, lord, lord over your body. In their case, it's someone, the prostitute. They think this is a freedom. I'm free. I've got Christian freedom to do what I want. He's saying, no, 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 anyone who is realistic about sin knows sin enslaves. It gets control over you. Even if even if you've got power to do whatever you want, hey, watch out that these things don't get power over you. To put it another way, even if something isn't a sin, that doesn't make it wise. Doesn't make it wise. Not all things are sin, but a lot of things that aren't sin are still unwise. I'm going to pick an example here. Is smoking a sin? I am tempted to have a vote now. I would be very interested to have put your hands up for yes, smoking is a sin, and then put your hands up for no, smoking isn't a sin. But I'm not going to because it might embarrass some people, especially if you give the answer I'm going to disagree with. Yeah? So just think in your minds, what is your answer? Is smoking a sin? Now, if you think, yes, it is, what are your reasons? Well, you might say, it's bad for you. It is very bad for you. It is a waste of money. God's given you money. Fancy spending it on giving yourself lung cancer. It's bad for you. You might say, it's addictive. It gets control over you. And so for those reasons, smoking is a sin. And my question to you would be, is eating Haribo sweets a sin? If you don't know what Haribo sweets are, yeah? They're not. They are bad for you. They're a waste of money, aren't they? And do you find them addictive? I do. Yeah. if I'm sitting in front of an open packet of Haribo sweets, it's very hard to eat half of them. Yeah, but They'll all be gone very quickly, I'm sorry to say. So, is eating Haribo sweets a sin? Now you might say, no, no. But, then, but they're just nowhere near as bad for you as smoking. They're not as costly as smoking, and they're not as addictive as smoking. And so I say, ah, oh, so it's a matter of wisdom, isn't it? There are some things that are very unwise to do, like smoking. Right? In case anyone's in any question, I'm not, there aren't many children here this evening. Children, I'm not encouraging you to start smoking, okay? It is very unwise. I'd question whether it's a sin, unless you're willing to say eating Haribo sweets is a sin. But it's very unwise. In other words, there is such a thing as Christian freedom. And it's important we defend it. Not all unwise actions are sins. Christian life isn't as simple as anything that's dodgy is a sin. No, there are some things that are unwise that are not sins. But it also means this, not all things that we are free to do are wise to do. Not all things that we are free to do are wise to do. And so verse 12 says, don't let anything get control of you. By the way, this makes me think of uh, one of the elders of the church where I grew up. He had grown up in a pub, literally. His parents were publicans. And when he turned up to church for the first time, not knowing anything, he started smoking in church <laughs> and until, uh, until the granny told him to stop. He said to me the time when he realised as a Christian he should stop smoking was when he realised he couldn't. I thought that was very odd, then I realised, because he explained further. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. He realised here's something that had got control of him. Don't let anything get control of you other than Jesus himself. That could be smoking. But it could also be sport. It could be surfing the net. It could be continually checking your phone. Isn't that addictive? It could be social media. It could be eating patterns. It could be the music you listen to that gets control of your mind and it's always going round and round in your mind. There's all sorts of things that you have Christian freedom over but they can get control over you and you need to be wise about them. Paul's first argument here to to stop these, Christ, these Christians in their foolish behaviour is be wiser about Christian freedom. Now, going to the prostitute isn't just unwise, and they are not free to do it, in case you're mistaking this. It's utterly against the gospel. So now we're going to get some further principles. Next one, have a higher view of your body. This is verses 13 to 14. Now, these verses are not straightforward. We're going to have to work at what verses 13 to 14 say. If, unlike me, you've got the 2011 NIV, that's got them a bit better than both the 1984 and the ESB. You see, what you do is you, you first get in verse 13 what the Corinthians say. Then Paul gives his parallel opposite. They've got a catchphrase. He makes up his opposite catchphrase. It goes a bit like this. The Corinthians say... Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. All of that is the Corinthian catchphrase. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Paul says, but, and there's a big but in there missed out by the English translations, but the body is not for sexual immorality. And then he gives his opposite catchphrase, which goes like this. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God will raise them both. Have you got that? Have you seen what he's doing? Sorry, it's not quite got in most of our English translations. Do you see what was going on there? The Corinthians had a low view of sex. It's just like eating food. It's just a bodily appetite. Now, Paul will correct that later. But first, he does something else. For now, he's more concerned with their low view of their bodies. They say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They don't really matter. What you do with your body doesn't really matter. It's all going to rot in the grave. And it's all just bodily appetites that will soon go. He says, no, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God will raise them both. Well, he has raised Jesus and he will raise us. You see, their society had a low view of the body. They were Greeks, ancient Greeks, in case you didn't know where Corinth was. And they had this low view of physical work. That's just for slaves. And they thought all that mattered was the minds. They were the big intellectuals. And that had got into the church. And they put a Christian spin on it. God will destroy our bodies. Our souls are saved. Our bodies don't really matter that much. So I can go to the prostitute with my body while worshipping God with my mind. Which to us sounded madness. And it was madness. But you see, what they've done is what is a continual danger in the church. Taken in attitudes of the world, and then just put a bit of a Christian coat of paint over the top. And in our case, I don't think, in our society, it's about going to the prostitute. But still, we have this continual danger. We take in the attitudes of the church, we put a Christian coat of paint over the top, and don't notice we're just like them in our way of thinking. That's what was going on. So Paul wants to correct it with this, a high view of the body. The Bible gives a high view of the body. It's amazing. Verse 13, the body is for the Lord. Your body belongs to the Lord Jesus. And it's to be used for him. And then even more amazing, verse 13, the Lord is for your body. Isn't that amazing? He is for your body. It matters to him. Your body. Yes, physically, you. Four foot or five foot or six foot or whatever of you. Matters to him. Because the eternal word, the Lord of glory, who made the world and all the power in the stars came from him, he took on a human body. Real flesh and blood. That could really get illness. And he suffered in his body. And he had to suffer in his body. Our salvation wouldn't work without him suffering in his body. And he was raised bodily. In order to raise your body to eternal life. So your body is not a mere shell for the real you. Now, when a Christian dies, someone says, sometimes people say, oh, there we are, looking at the body, it's just a shell, it doesn't matter. Anyone who's been bereaved knows that that is nonsense. Your, your loved one's body does matter to you, and that is biblical. Because the body isn't a mere shell for the real you. It is not disposable. The Lord is for the body, and your body is for the Lord. And it matters to him. And so we must be better than our society in our attitude to our bodies. What does that mean? Now, I I expect if you put your mind to it, you can think of loads of examples. I'll give you a few. Your body is not to be used as a self-promotion tool. I say, how is my body used as a self-promotion tool? Well, our society is full of it, isn't it? Yeah, promoting, displaying your looks, your fitness, your strength displaying you to attract people to you, to impress people with you. You might say, oh, fat chance of that with me. But it happens, doesn't it, in our society? Maybe particularly in sporty Loughborough. Doesn't mean sport is wrong, no. But it means the use of our body to promote me, to promote self, is wrong. No, your body, your voice, your abilities, your energies... Your practicalities are to be used to promote Jesus and attract people to him. Here's another thing it means. Your body is not something to hate. We're in a really mixed up society where the body is used as a promotion tool but it's also, by many people, hated. And something that they harm and they repress. And I know there are all sorts of deep issues there that are not going to be undone by me speaking this one sentence. The body is not something to hate. It's it's something the Lord Jesus values and he cares about. And it also means you were not born in the wrong body. What a strange idea our society has, that you could be born in the wrong body. That is not possible. The Lord is for your body. It isn't just a disposable shell for some real you inside. And then there's all sorts of other implications. Let me, I will illustrate one. Here's an illustration. You buy yourself a nice, shiny red Ferrari. OK, maybe that's not very likely for most of us. But you buy yourself a nice, shiny red Ferrari. Impressive car. And you take it home. And what do you do when you get home? You scratch into the bonnet a picture Let's say it's a, bla- a bluey-gray Celtic pattern that you scratch into the bonnet of the Ferrari. And you can, Some of you will probably seeing where I'm going with this. Are you going to do that? No way, that would spoil the lovely car. And to do that would be saying either the designers of Ferrari didn't know what they're doing and I know better and I can improve this car, or it would be saying this car doesn't matter, it's disposable, it will soon be wrecked. Now can you see where I'm going? Both of those are things that the Chris, Christian, you cannot say about your body. You cannot say the designer didn't know what he was doing, so I'm going to improve it. Nor can you say it's disposable and doesn't matter. So I'm just going to draw a picture on it. There we go. It will rot in the grain. Do you see what I'm getting at? Christian, your body isn't like that. The designer knew what he was doing and it's not disposable. So please don't spoil it with body modifications. And scratching pictures into the surface of it. Just one of many practical applications of what the Bible says about your body. Let's move on because there is a third way that Paul is going to attack their sin. There's a third lesson God has for us this evening. And it's this. Have a higher view of sex. This is verses 15 to 17. Have a higher view of sex. Now, first of all, back to verse 13. The Corinthians had a low view of sex. Verse 13, they saw it as just a bodily appetite, like eating food. They saw it as just something you do with your body, and the body doesn't matter because we're Greeks who've moved above the, that sort of thing. So it's of no lasting significance. Now, that is like our society. It's funny how something things stick in your mind. I can picture where I was in my car when I switched the radio on, And heard, it was either an actress or a singer being interviewed. I can't remember which. And she was well known for her sleeping around. And the interviewer was interviewing her. And at some point he said to her something about all these men she was known for sleeping around with. And she said to him, oh, David, or whatever the interviewer was called. Why do you bring that up? It's only sex. It's just sex. Why does it matter to you? It's just sex. You see, that's our society's attitude. Our society's attitude is, it's just recreational. It's just like eating and drinking. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. And yet at the same time, our society says, your sexuality is your identity and you cannot be fulfilled without it. Completely contradictory and nonsensical. How much better is the Bible? The Bible which says, you can be fulfilled without it, It is not essential, but it is a good gift from God. And it is much more than just a physical act. Verse 16. Here is what God has to say about it. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Which, by the way, is a quote from Genesis 2, and is the most quoted phrase in the Bible, or the phrase that comes up most frequently in the Bible, about marriage. But here it's applied to the Christians going to the prostitutes. Because sex is much more than a physical act. It is creating a bond between two people. It is making a oneness between people. That's why misuse of sex causes so much emotional damage. It isn't just physical. It creates a bond. And so the Bible being anti-sexual immorality is not because it has a low view of sex and thinks it's dirty. No, it's because it has a high view of sex as a gift of God that must be used his way, in his context, which means marriage. And Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Now, for the Christian, on top of that, we have verse 17. Verse 17. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The Christian is united to the Lord. By the work of the Holy Spirit, the Christian is one with Jesus Christ himself. And that is incompatible with uniting yourself with a prostitute or anyone other than your spouse. It's two unions that are completely incompatible. It's like you're tearing yourself in two directions. Because you're united to Jesus. How can you unite yourself to a prostitute or anyone other than your spouse? So there we have getting our understanding right. The Bible doesn't just say do this and don't do that. It says do this and don't do that on the basis of the gospel. Be wiser about Christian freedom. Have a higher view of your body and have a higher view of sex. The Bible's teaching is not at all negative. It's got positive reasons behind it. Now we get on to getting our actions right. Verses 18 to 20, getting our actions right. First part, very simple. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now, God has given us enough reasons already, so all he has to do in verse 18 is state it. And it only needs to be simply stated. Flee from sexual immorality. It's as simple as that. Because the reasons have been given. Don't negotiate with it. Don't see how near to it you can get. Don't discuss and think about how one day you'll trim it back or even stop it altogether. It says flee from it. Flee. In other words, like this. How would you flee if you heard the Russians were coming to your town? The Russian army. How would you flee? I would have thought as quickly as possible, without delay, and get as far away from them as you can, wouldn't you? Put as much distance between yourself and them as possible. And that's exactly what he's saying about sexual immorality. As quickly as you can. Put as much distance between yourself and it as possible. Don't see how near to it you can get. Don't play around with it. Don't say, oh, I think this thing will be all right and I'm strong enough and I'll stand. Let's get some practical examples. You are not fleeing from sexual immorality if you are watching it happen on TV and in films. You are not... Fleeing from sexual immorality if you're looking at it online. And this, this isn't just about porn. Obviously it does include porn. But it's also those, it's that clickbait that's designed to get your attention down this, on Facebook and down the side of Hotmail or wherever it might be. There's plenty of clickbait that isn't porn, but it's designed to provoke, provoke sexual immorality. You're not Fleeing sexual immorality if you were as boyfriend and girlfriend going on holiday, just the two of you together. You are not fleeing sexual immorality if with someone of the opposite sex, who you are not married to, the two of you are spending time alone together, late into the evening and the night with no one else present. You are not fleeing sexual immorality if you're choosing, notice I say choosing, to spend time with a work colleague you feel attracted to or you're flattered that you're getting the message that he or she feels attracted to you. I think I have to say, unless you're unmarried and that person is someone you're seriously considering marrying. Okay? Now you might say, what is this new legalism? Fancy he's laying down laws for us that go beyond the Bible. Fancy that. He is restricting our Christian freedom. Well, remember verse 12. Not everything we're free to do is wise to do. So I have to be careful about laying down laws. We can't put some laws into our, into our church constitution that says no boyfriends and girlfriends allowed to go on holiday together. No one allowed to spend time late at night together without anyone else around. We can't do that. It goes beyond the Bible. But I can say be wise, be wise, because many Christians have fallen into sexual immorality and almost none of them thought they would. They thought, I'm strong enough, this will be all right, I'll set the line here and I won't go beyond that line. I'll go here but not beyond that line. It doesn't work. God, God doesn't say, just make sure you don't get near the line. He says, flee sexual immorality, so be wise. Now, there's more persuasion given in verses 18 to 20. Because the battle over sexual immorality is fierce, Paul brings out more weapons against it in verses 18 to 20. Now, the way I want to to use them is to reinforce last week's lesson. So hopefully many of you can remember it. If you weren't here or you've forgotten it, I'll give you a little reminder. Last week was, we were in verses, what was it, verse 9 to 9 to 11. And we saw we don't fight sin to make ourselves different. We fight sin because God has made us different. We saw we don't flee sexual immorality to get accepted by God. We flee sexual immorality because we have been accepted by God. The catchphrase I tried to get into our minds last week was, know who you are and don't act like who you were. And you've got that coming up again in these verses 18 to 20 in three ways. My mind always works down threes. We've got it in three ways. But I think they are genuinely here in the Bible. It's not just me planting threes everywhere. First one, verse 18. Verse 18, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now this is a strange phrase which people have puzzled over, because other sins do use and affect the body. doesn't take much imagination. Getting drunk, you can't do that without using your body, and it definitely does affect your body. Yeah, all sorts of sins use your body and affect your body. So what is meant here? Well, it's almost certainly this. Your body is precious because, Christian, you are body and soul. Wholly, the whole you is united to Christ. And so to unite your body to anyone other than your spouse is a contradiction of who you are. Because the whole you, body and soul, belongs to Jesus. That seems to be what's going on in verse 18. Christian, know who you are. You're united to Jesus. Don't contradict that by uniting yourself to a prostitute. Then verse 19, we have another one. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? What sort of person says, my body is a temple? What sort of person says, my body is a temple? That's the sort of thing an Olympic gymnast who's opposer says. Not that all Olympic gymnasts opposers, but that's the sort of or a Kim Kardashian. That's the sort of thing a Kim Kardashian says. Fellow Christian, whatever shape you're in, however frail you are, whatever age you are, you can say my body is a temple. A temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Think of that. And there's, here's a third thing to know about yourself. Verse 19 into 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus Christ has purchased you. Holy. That's holy with a W at the beginning. I mean fully, totally you. You belong to Him, all of you. And the price was His death on the cross. Now, okay, we all know that, don't we, already? Yeah, Jesus died for us. He's purchased us. Good. All familiar? Move on. Nothing new to see here. No, no, no. Please, let's stop and pause and think of that. Don't ever lose amazement. Don't ever lose being stunned at this. The Son of God, the Lord of Glory, purchased you, wanted you personally for himself. And he purchased you with the price being all that horrendous experience on the cross. Now, the point of all these is, verse 19, do you not know? Which is almost a catchphrase of 1 Corinthians. He keeps saying to these Corinthians, don't you know? Because to many of their problems, the answer was, know who you are in Christ. So he says, don't you know? Don't you know you're united to Jesus? Don't you know you're a temple of the Spirit? Don't you know you were purchased by the Son of God? Christian, know who you are in Christ and don't live like who you were. And that means there's also good news here. That means there's good news here for people who have sinned in this area. Remember, these, these Corinthians had... These Corinthians had sinned sexually. Well, because we're reading about them going to the prostitute, but also because of verse 9. Verse 9 we looked at last week. Talks about the sexually immoral and the adulterers and the male prostitutes and the homosexual offenders. And then says verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. But you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amazing. Male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, adulterers, sexually immoral people of whatever type. That's what they were. But They were washed completely clean. They were justified, totally accepted. They were sanctified. God regards them as set apart for him. Have you committed sexual immorality? Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't give in. Whatever your sin, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, God looks at you and He says, That is my well loved child with whom I am well pleased. That's what He says about you in Christ. Now, all of this is reason to verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. But there's a bigger, more positive aim behind it all. And so we end with verse 20. Verse 20. Here's the bigger aim behind it all. Verse 20. Therefore, honour God with your body. That's the goal of this section of the Bible. That's where he's been heading. Okay, it's a big problem has caused it. A specific problem going to the prostitutes. But Paul and God through Paul has got something better out of it. Honor God with your body. You can honor God with your with your body. The words are not, mistake, not a generalization; they are very specific. They are there for a purpose. With your body, honor God. A minister and a wife had a little phrase to help each other when they were not feeling like serving God and they were discouraged or tired. So for example, let's say it got to the end of the day, they'd been working hard, they were tired, and the phone went and there was someone wanted to see them. And oh, they just didn't feel like it. And the wife would say to the husband, yo," And then off he would go. Or, or there was some other way that they thought they should serve God and it just didn't appeal to them. And the husband would say to the wife, Yanyo. Now that's odd, isn't it? What does "yan yo" mean? Have a look in verse 19. This was their little phrase to each other. Have a look at the end of verse 19. Why would they say to each other, yan yo? I can see that some have got it. You are not your own. It's what they would be saying. You're not your own. So go on, let's go. Let's go and honor God with our bodies. Let's go and put our bodies out to serve him. You see, it's not just about avoiding sexual immorality. It's positive as well. We belong to the Lord including our bodies. So let's honour him with our bodies. You belong to Jesus, all of you. So let's use all of us to honour him in our lives. So will you positively use your body to honour God? Think of this. The Son of God got himself a body. What did he do with that body? Well, he used it to work reliably for decades as a carpenter, honouring God by reliable work with his hands. He used it to go to needy people. He needed a body. He took himself, walked with his legs to go to needy people and to see them. He used it to touch the untouchable. He used it to wash other people's feet. He used his body to speak words from God Sometimes Comes correction, often encouragement and instruction. He used it to sing the praise of God. He used it to help his disciples learn how to pray. He used his body to honour his Father, and so can you. Will you be like the Lord Jesus and use your body to honour God? Your body isn't a negative thing that's just to be restrained because it has tendencies to sin. Yes, it does need to be restrained, but it isn't a negative thing just to be restrained. No, your body is an amazing thing that reflects God. The seeing, speaking, acting, decision-making God is reflected by you bodily. And so it's to be put to use. You are not your own. You were bought at an amazing price. So honour God with your body. Let's pray for that.